Welcome to Technology Forward, where we explore trends and developments in the additive manufacturing industry. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening. The scale of sizes that 3D printing machines can handle is impressive, from huge wind turbine blades to parts that are small, such as two microns. Today, I'm here with John Koala, CEO of Boston Microfabrication, to discuss the microscale side of 3D printing. So thank you for being with me here today, John. Yeah, thank you, Leslie. It's good to see you. Okay, let's get started with what's new in microscale 3D printing. Okay, uh, so microscale 3D printing, um, or the, co the concept of making parts sort of at millimeter scale or even sub-millimeter scale, um, a lot of the technologies to be able to do that have been around for a while. So it's not, it not invented yesterday, you know, yesterday, but it was invented maybe five years ago, 10 years ago. And what you're seeing over the last few years is some of these uh, technologies really being commercialized for industrial use. So, you know, our technology, we use a, a, a process which is a variant stereolithography. We call it projection microsterolithography or PULSE for short, it was uh, an idea. And this idea was being worked on by a number of different professors around the world, but it was an idea of a professor here in, in Boston at MIT named uh, Nick Fang. And Nick had uh, been working on microfabrication techniques over the years. A lot of those microfabrication techniques are not 3D printing, things like embossing and etching and photolithography right. and, and other things like that, things that are often used in, in, let's say, the semiconductor space or the MEM space. And his idea was to try to sort of move that into the additive manufacturing space. And so he, he really sort of the concept was around uh, this pulse approach, which is similar to uh, other DLP uh, 3D printers out there in the market. We're using a resin bath, we're using a light to cure resin, but then we have a couple different things in there to really focus the, the light source down to a very fine resolution and then highly control the movement so that you can get the, the precision that you're needing, needing for these types of components. So that, that's really where the technology came from uh, for BMF. Nick and some other colleagues uh, got together, started a company a few years ago, and we commercialized it and really started selling globally about two years ago. So we have offices in Boston. We have office in Shenzhen in China. We have an office in the UK. We have an office in Japan. And that's, so that's from the technology side. But then when you look at it from the market side, there was a whole, in our, in our view, there was a whole view, uh, sort of segment of customers in a lot of you know, pretty high value industries that do product development, that do manufacturing and production. But the, their requirements in terms of the resolution and dimensional accuracy was really out of reach of what you could do with what was out there on the market for the last 10 or 20 years. And so um, I think what's coming together here for, for BMF is we have this technology that we think works great, and we're meeting a demand for customers who, you know, typically making parts that are, you know, millimeter, as, I, as I like to say, millimeter in scale, but perhaps micron in tolerance. Uh, and we can, our, our throughput is also reasonable. I mean, that you could produce thousands of parts, you know, in a week or month, depending on the size of the, the part. Some of the previous or the, really the current, I'll say nanotechnologies that have been out there are fabulous technologies. Uh, things like two photon lithography and, and others that can do things sub-micron, amazing technology. But if you wanted to make the part, if you wanted to make a, a 20 millimeter size part, it might take a week on one of those other technologies. So that we, we didn't think that was really practical for design engineers who are working on products. 
and they in the spaces that that really demand what we offer. And so some of those industries that uh, have been really been the brunt of our sort of first wave of customers here in the first two years are in things like uh, electronics uh, connectors. I mean, the connector market in the world is a hundred billion dollar market. There's lots of connectors that don't need us, but there's a lot of lot, the connectors are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. There's lots of things in optics and photonics. So sensors, the AR VR market for AR VR glasses, that's a market that didn't exist, you know, six or seven years ago. Uh, and it's starting to really gain traction and everybody thinks these are too big. So there's all these efforts to try to miniaturize in, in the optics and photonics market, the medical device market, things are getting smaller, whether they're sensors or drug delivery devices or implantables. So there's all these, these industries that one couldn't really use other 3D printers that are out there previously, just even just a prototype. And there's a whole trend around lots of industries wanting to get smaller. And so I think all those things coming together are what's sort of new for microfabrication and having it be now a sort of a practical design and prototyping device, but also a good potential for short-run manufacturing. And I think that's, that's what's new. There were lots of microfabrication te techniques before, but most of them were for research or I'll call it sub-micron uh, applications. So for the, for the design engineer, what are some of the challenges they encounter when they're trying to design for this micro-scale market? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know if a lot of those those challenges are much different from what sort of macro parts are. I mean, if you think about a plastic part that needs to be molded, uh, they need to design in all the features that make the part the part. So whether if it's a connector, it needs to have certain features to be a connector, or whether it needs to be a chip packaging, it needs to have a certain characteristics to hold a chip or a lens holder. Um, and so, but there are all, always considerations about how are you going to make this thing? How, yeah. how are you going to, how are you going to mold it, machine it, stamp it, whatever. So I, I'm not sure the challenges are that much different from uh, in the design side of micro versus for, sort of macro. But one of the realities is the manufacturing processes for a lot of these smaller parts are more difficult and much more expensive. So, you know, so I'll use an example. Like if you're, if you're molding, you know, something like my computer mouse, that's not that hard to do. It, it, well understood, the injection mold is maybe tens of thousands of dollars and you go into production and people know how to do that. But if you're making something really, really small, that injection mold may no longer be $25,000. It might be $250,000 because you need to machine that mold to get all the tolerances that you need and you need to be able to build in the sort of ports and the, all the, the um, sort of dynamics that go into an injection mold, but at a very small scale. So just so, to clarify, are these 3D printing systems making the molds for these small parts or are they actually making the parts? Yeah, so for, for us, our, we, we can make the molds, uh, but mo most of our customers are making the parts. Okay. Yeah, and so they're making them for prototyping because they couldn't prototype two years ago at the scale that they were looking to prototype. They couldn't get the resolution and detail they wanted, one, you know, one for one. So they're prototyping. And then I would say probably about a third of our customers have an eye toward production. So they're, they're bringing our systems in, they're testing materials, they're, they're testing their design, and then they are going through that thought process of, 
hey, we need 500,000 of these, or we need 10,000 of these, or whatever, whatever number they need. And they're starting to do that math. And they're trying to figure out, perhaps we 3D print these instead of mold them or machine them or stamp them. And so and I would say about a third of our customers are looking pretty seriously at using our, our platform and our materials for production applications. And these materials are predominantly resin-based. That's right. Uh, we have resin and also composite, like ceramic. And so I, I think the trick for all of 3D printing, whether it's uh, resin-based or filament-based or powder-based, is to get those additive manufactured materials, those 3D printing materials, to be sufficiently the same yeah. as uh, molded materials or machine materials. And that, that's, that's been the whole game here, right, in the last five or 10 years of how, how to try to match up with what, in the plastics world, most of these are thermoplastics. And so resins aren't thermoplastics. So, you know, our challenge and the industry's challenge is to, to try to get that part to be close enough to the thermoplastic to be suitable for the application. Okay. So outside of the material challenges, what were some of the technical barriers that you had to tackle to make the 3D printer and to make it able to produce such small scale parts? Well, I, I think a lot of it is, you know, it's good work of our... Primarily, our, our, our CTO, his name's uh, Chung Wazia, he came from this semiconductor space. So he sort of understood sort of high tolerance. And I think that's our challenge that I think we've met to be able to create a platform when people are looking to get tolerances in the sort of plus or minus five microns. And, and they're measuring. And you can't measure plus or minus five microns with a, cal with a set of calipers. So you're measuring that with a, with a scanner or CT. And so, you know, we need to have, we needed to have a platform that could, you know, image onto the resin, create the part. If you're making a larger part, our, our platform actually moves to be able to image in certain sections. So all of that had to stack up. Uh, you know, you're also dealing with material shrinkage. So you got all these, these variables that you're trying to get to a place where you're plus or minus whatever that tolerance is. And so I think it's just a lot of good engineering by our team here to recognize that's, that's the target. And it's also who we are as a company, because if we can't, you know, offering very high resolution parts or very high tolerances, if we can't do that, then you can go buy a carbon machine or Envision Tech machine or a figure four machine, or there's a whole bunch of offerings that are well-established and been in the market for much longer than we have. So all of our customers are looking for sort of that next level in terms of tolerance, and we need to be able to deliver that. Now in, in the DLP system, Anything special that you had to alter in order to get that light point as small yeah. as you needed to do? Yeah, so there's a couple of things different. Uh, one, we have, high we have high precision optics in between the light source and the, and the resin. So okay. we're really focusing down to a certain pixel size. So when we talk about, let's say, 10 micron optical resolution, that's actually the size of the pixel that's being imaged onto the, onto the liquid. Most DLP systems in the market are upside down. So they're building like this and they're coming out of the liquid. And that has a lot of advantages. We, we are top down. Okay. And we do that for a couple of reasons. One is we need to control layer thickness. You know, our, our, the thickness of our layers are in the 10 to 20 micron range. So we need to be able to highly control that. All DLP systems, all resin-based systems, when that, when that light comes down and uh, polymerizes the, the resin, that's a reaction and there's heat. 
And so most uh, 3D uh, printing systems, there, there's heat being generated. And that's one of the challenges actually for a lot of DLP platforms. Uh, company, company in Chicago, Azul, has got some new, new um, sort of breakthroughs in how to control that heat and try to cool that process as it goes. But you know, it's a challenge and heat is bad for trying to maintain dimensional accuracy. So that's another reason why we are top down because when you have a when you're when you're bottom up you only have a, a thin sort of layer of resin there's heat there and that can build up when you're when you're top down and you have a vat it acts as a heat sink okay. so you don't really have that build up of heat that affects most other technologies okay i think we covered the materials somewhat so you have your resins and your ceramics any other materials that are suitable no those are those are the main ones you know what i'll, I'll talk a little bit to the the ecosystem that's evolving and has been evolving for probably five years on the material side. So we, we, we are an open platform. Um, companies over the years have chosen to be uh, closed or open. I've, I've run companies that were closed and that was a, a great business model for a 3D printing company. And, and for prototyping, arguably the materials don't matter that much. Right. right? They need to be close enough. And right. most people can be pretty happy. But when you get into manufacturing, they need to be really close or exact. So I think the collective sort of wisdom of more and more companies being in the 3D printing material space, in my opinion, has significantly moved the industry forward over the last five years, at least. So it, now it's not just the, the 3D printing companies with their relatively small material scientists, you know, material science departments within each company. Now you've got Henkel and Cavestro and BASF and Avonic and all these big companies coming in and developing materials to, to help push that along. And so we've tried to take advantage of that. So we, we try to shop around and see what's available and partner with it as many people as we can. And I think what's attractive also in that open business model is if resins work on some other DLP printer and have proven to be successful and attractive to customers, they will probably work on our platform too. So we, we can take things that have been developed. We need to modify them a little bit, primarily because our layers are thinner. So we have to, to tune them essentially, but then we can offer those that, that, that wider range of materials for the customers. Uh, the other pretty important thing that we believe in for the open materials model is if, if, if big customers are really gonna go into production, they're gonna wanna have more control over the material supply chain. That's our opinion. So they're going, they're going to want to be involved. I mean, we, we even see it when we work with, so, you know, we're still a small company. And when we go to a, a big chemical company and ask them to, to do something for us, you know, they're polite, but they, they don't jump. But if we go there with a customer that is already one of their customers on the thermoplastic side, they already buy tons and tons and tons and tons of plastic pellets from this chemical company. They're, they're more willing, I think, to, to think about you know, working together to develop 3D printing materials for that customer. Yeah, I think open source materials is definitely a key trend in any additive process. Yeah. And I, think, I think the trick, the trick for us as a, as a uh, 3D printer manufacturer is to, one, it's gonna, one we think it's going to benefit us because people will buy more machines. But two, to the extent that we can get our percentage of the, the materials uh, and, and be happy with that, you know, that's, that's the, the challenge of trying to make that business model work as well. Okay. Where do you see this technology going in the future? I think this is, um, this is true for microfabrication, micro 3D printing. It's true for probably all 3D printing as well as 
there's been a significant improvement over the last 10 years in materials and machines and in price of the machines and software. All these things have turned this industry from, you know, I think it's roughly 10 times bigger than it was 10 years ago. So in terms of dollars spent and machines and materials and parts. And I think that trend will continue. But I think one of the biggest trends that's starting to happen now is making sure that all the all the systems and the materials and the software are designed with manufacturing in mind. Okay. So that the systems can be put into a factory and put in series or parallel and, and can work with the quality management system that the company may have. That's a new idea. Well, no, it's not that new, but it's, this was, nobody was thinking about this 15 years ago in 3D printing. I mean, you bought a machine, you put it stuck in the corner, it made prototypes for you every day. And that, and that was magic. Yeah. Right? But to really move it into a production environment, there's a whole different set of rules. And I think, and I don't know if that's technology innovation necessarily, but it is sort of process innovation and, you know, uh, pushing all the companies to be able to get to that place to be, to be qualified and ready for that. It's kind of a drive towards automation, towards having things run automatically, unattended, unsupervised. Yep. Yeah, you know, I think there's a I think there's a balance there. I mean, uh, you know, we, we certainly get requests for from our customers about, well, that the, the printer's great, but it would be great if you had a robot go in there and do everything for you, and then you wouldn't have anybody in the building. And I think that uh, certain elements of that are valid, but you'll always have to you know balance the cost. To be honest, because mm -hmm. I think for most three D printing technologies, including ours, the very large majority of the cost is not the labor. You know, it's, it's the amortization of the machine, it's the materials, and the labor is a relatively small component. So like um, traditional manufacturing technologies. That's true, right. For injection mold, you mold a machine, you set it up, yeah. you turn it on and you go home, come back the next day and it's still going. So I, I think the automation piece um, is important when it adds real value and it has to be balanced with, you know, really the cost and, and flexibility to be honest, that comes with a person. A person's pretty flexible. Mm -hmm. and, you know, mm -hmm. If it drops something on the floor, he picks it up. If, if the robot drops something on the floor and it didn't mean to, it doesn't know how to pick it up. So there's, there's that balance there. And you know, I, I've been in injection molding houses and I've been in 3D printing uh, service bureaus where there's 20 machines running and there's like one or two people. And so you know, I, think, I think the automation, I think will help, but I think it's, you know, there's still lots of room to go in terms of uh, getting the machines to the point where they may need more automation. Now, with all the development going on in the electronics industry and in the semiconductor industry, and then with all the supply chain issues that have come about because of where everything is located, has this had any effect on your systems, on your equipment, or on your markets? A little bit. But I mean, we actually launched our company globally in February of 2020. <laughs> so... You know. <laughs> Right, right before COVID, really, right. right when COVID was happening. Um, now we were a pretty new company, and so we were starting from zero. So you know we weren't really going backwards, but we've been lucky because as a startup of our size, um, and we've got about two hundred plus customers around the world, because a frame of reference, we're already pretty global, pretty fast. So we, you know, because we have an operation in Shenzhen, we have an operation in Boston and and in the UK, and that has in a lot of ways that's been a net positive for us. So that we've been able to 
to deal with some supply chain issues. We, you know, we've 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 been thoughtful about buying forward, like a lot of people are doing. So, but we have more inventory than we normally would have to try to insulate ourselves from that. But our parts, we're also, you know, we ship a lot of parts, you know, printed parts around the world. The parts are small. Do you so, actually ship them, or are you shipping the CAD programs and letting them being manufactured? Near well, the, so, like, yeah, so our, pri our primary business model is we sell the technology. So we sell machines and materials and the software and, and support to do that. But we also print lots of parts ourselves, okay. one for benchmarking for free for, for customers, but also we sell parts. Um, not sure if that'll be our long-term business model or not, but it's, I think it's been uh, valuable in sort of getting parts out there in the world and getting people uh, comfortable with their technology. And we're pretty diversified in that we've got a print farm here in Boston, we've got a print farm in, in China, and they're not they're not mutually exclusive. We're not, it, it's sort of like we're balancing capacity. Okay. So sometimes we're printing a lots of US parts in China and sometimes we're printing China parts in the US. And so a lot of it just go, goes back and forth. And we can do that because the shipping costs for us, because the parts are small. You know, so the biggest box that you have is you know this big. <laughs> and so we've been able to get around any significant supply chain challenges. Now things are, you know, shipping machines is four or five times more expensive than they were. You know, shipping materials has gotten more complicated. So uh, it takes longer. Everything takes longer. So, but we've tried to insulate ourselves by just building in that sort of assumption with, with inventory. Okay. So any final thoughts on micro 3D printing? No, I mean, we're, we're excited about, you know, after two years, we're excited about the fact that we, you know, we had a market thesis that this technology, we knew the technology worked. I think the thing we didn't know is, will people care? <laughs> and so we were, we've been very happy with the, the reaction that we've gotten from the market, um, from some of these industries that I described before. And when we think about the future, I'm, I'm not sure we'll get smaller. I think we, we found a sweet spot in parts that are sort of in that millimeter range uh, and that's a huge market when you look at connectors and medical device and optics and photonics and microfluidics, and all those markets are growing double digits by, mm -hmm. on their own. Mm -hmm. And then all those markets are, most of these companies have mandates to make things smaller. And so I think all those trends and a lot of those are market trends, you know, bode well for having a large enough opportunity for us to, to build a meaningful company. All right. Well, thank you for your time, John. Yeah. Thanks, Leslie.